Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome. Good, great to see you today. We began to teach through the book of John, Gospel of John, early uh, this year. And uh, you might have noticed this reading was from John chapter 4. So uh, this is our 17th message in the Gospel of John. So if you're new to the surge and you want to get caught up and see what we've learned already, you can watch the videos or get a hold of the podcasts. Uh, both are available uh, on our website. Uh, the most recent message we did was back on the 4th of July, and it drew on the same passage we're looking at today, but we're going to dig into it a little bit differently, a different angle today. Uh, to get a beat on that, I did a survey among folks in my small group a couple of weeks ago, and I asked them this question, how did it come to be that you are a follower of Christ? Uh, did you hear the gospel from a TV show or radio, uh, from a church service, or maybe a message from a preacher? Uh, did Jesus visit you in a dream and give you the gospel? I, I ask that because I know some people that have had that happen to them. Uh, was it through a personal uh, witness of another person in your life? And the results of that informal survey kind of confirm what more rigorous studies have revealed, which is most people come to Christ because of a personal one-on-one -on -one kind of relationship, sharing of the gospel one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, or maybe even a preacher on Sunday, right? But it was cool how many folks in the, the small group were led to Christ by their moms or dads. Uh, I personally came to Christ at the age of 12 through my Sunday school teacher, uh, but I will say my mom and dad got saved and started dragging us kids to church. Uh, so I've had the opportunity to lead folks to Christ over the years, sometimes from messages on Sunday, uh, sometimes in small groups, sometimes in one-on-one -on -one sessions. But however it happens, there's just always great joy involved uh, when someone puts their faith in Christ. It's an incredible experience for the sharer as well. So the question this morning is, is this. How, how, do we, how do we do that? Uh, what's, what's the method? Is there an approach? Uh, is there is it like a one biblical model? Uh, the answer is there's all kinds of biblical models. Uh, we're going to look at Jesus' example today with this woman at the well in Samaria. Now, in our small group uh, a few weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus back in John chapter 3. And then we compared it to the conversation Jesus has with this Samaritan woman in chapter 4. We noticed this. Jesus doesn't just have one Bible tract, you know, the Roman road to salvation. He throws it at people as they walk by. Uh, he's got a tailored approach that's based upon learning something or knowing something about the person. Uh, with Nicodemus, Jesus launched into the old you-must-be-born-again thing, right? Which blew Nicodemus's mind, uh, but it also got him asking questions. We'll see Jesus do the same thing, get the same reaction from this approach with the gal that revolves around being thirsty. Uh, pretty clever, really, since they're meeting at a well in the heat of the day, where people come to get water because they are thirsty. Okay, see, see the connection, right? Uh, now, something about this woman, it's painfully obvious. She is not particularly predisposed to hearing this message. She was not raised in a Christian home. She was not doing well in life. She's pretty much been mangled by life, probably hardened by life. And no doubt, one of the reasons John, the gospel writer, shares this with us is to show us how Jesus kind of deals with her in uh, the way he does. See, we found out, if you've ever done this before, that using judgment upon people 
you know, meeting people for the first time and saying, oh, how are you doing? You're going to hell. I mean, that probably doesn't work to conjure up relationships, right? It usually creates great resistance, uh, maybe an argument, maybe a punch in the nose. Uh, clearly, an end of the conversation is going to happen. See, love tends to be tender, tends to invite a relationship and a conversation that leads the person to discover their need for Jesus, right? So to highlight the importance of what Jesus does here, let me just start with a little story. Back in 1949, a 17-year-old teenager, John Currier, was convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison. After several years, years in a cell, he was assigned to leave the prison cell and go to a prison work farm just outside Nashville, Tennessee. That was in some heard after 1949. In 1968, he was paroled and sent a letter letting him know that he is now a free man. The problem. Never got the letter. Never got the letter telling him that. Never was told about it, never read it. So he stayed working on the farm. Suspicion is that the guy who owns the farm got the letter and didn't want to lose a farm hand, so never told him. Ten years later, it'd be 1978, a, a, a guy who's working in the parole system sort of discovered this. He actually found a copy of the letter that had been sent to John Courier, and he personally visited John Courier to let him know, hey, you know, you're, you've been free for the last ten years, you just, you just didn't know it. Congratulations. Okay, here's a question that follows that story. Would it matter to you if somebody sent you an important message? Maybe the most important message of your life, but year after year after year after year, it never got to you. Sure, it would matter to you, right? Like it mattered to John Currier. And that's kind of the thrust of today's little chat, the importance of delivering the message. We have the greatest message in the world, life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus has declared that members of his church are to be I was going to say postal workers, but you know, the postal office is now slowing down their effort to get things to you quickly. So that, if you think about when the post office really delivered stuff really quickly, you're supposed to be postal service people. We need to deliver the message. And it's kind of interesting and maybe sort of sad, no, not really sad, it's really sad, that studies have shown that about 95% of people who call themselves born-again, Bible-believing, Christian followers, God Christ followers, have never ever shared their faith with even one other person. So as we look at John chapter 4, I just want to talk to you about two principles I kind of discovered here. First is kind of our own attitudes, and uh, you know, yours and mine, right? And second is kind of the approach, and we're going to see what Jesus does here. But the idea is that maybe we kind of come alongside Jesus and maybe use some of these. So loving attitudes, kind of key. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, do, not, do not people know? Do you know when people around you care about you or not? You can figure that out, right? You can spot that, right? A dog can do that, right? So humans are smarter than dogs. We may not be as nice as a dog, but we're smarter than dogs. We can spot that. But then I think we have to have kind of another thing I just call a lingering approach. Tend to think of people as projects sometimes. Oh, good, we go share the gospel. They don't accept it. I'm going to go to the next person. But this is the approach Jesus seems to have that says, you know, I'm going to stick I'm going, to stick, I'm going to stick with this a little bit. I'm going to see what this, where this goes. I'm willing to kind of let it play out a little bit. I'm not going to just give up because I think the soil's too hard. Uh, 
I'm not going to bag it because this person's not going where I want him to go right away. I'm going to into, into a conversation. I'm going to let that conversation maybe morph into a relationship that might allow me as the deliverer of the message to know how to share Christ with this person that might make Christ appealing. So we just read these 10 verses. You probably thought we were going to read the whole New Testament. So no, we're not going to do that. But I just wanted to share the whole kind of general picture of what's going on here. So first of all, let's deal, let's deal with the loving attitude. You and I need to start asking God to give us a loving attitude toward people who are lost, who don't know Christ. Here's the problem with some of us. Some of us have been saved so long, we have a hard time remembering what it was like for us when we were lost. We need God to give us hearts that will break for those who don't know Christ. We can't do that unless we're doing it in love. Let's say you're a doctor. Theoretically, theoretically, you could practice medicine without giving one wit about your patients. I mean, you could do that. You could be a technician. You might not love your patients. You're just in it for the money, maybe the glory, right? I don't think most doctors do this, right? Um, but it's possible, suppose. Technically, to approach a patient, treat a patient, without having any concern for whether they make it or not. You're a lawyer. You can do your job without necessarily loving your clients. If you're an engineer, same, same goes. But I don't think you can and I can. I don't think we can pull it off. Doing what we're called to do by Christ in this world without some love for other people. Because Jesus was full of it for this woman. So three things I want you to see about his loving approach. One, his love transcended culture. If you're here on the 4th of July, you might remember that we talked a little bit about the rift between the Jews and Samaritans. Uh, given that, it was a bit weird, really, back in verse 4, they were told Jesus, down south, is going to go up to Galilee, and it says he needed to pass through Samaria, when no normal Jew would ever have thought that, and no Samaritan would ever have expected it. That's why the woman in verse 7, when Jesus asks her for a drink, responds, why are you asking me for a drink? A Samaritan woman. And then John adds, parenthetically, just in case we're not Jewish and we didn't live 2,000 years ago, he puts his little parenthetical on there, because Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. We don't talk to them. We covered that issue back on 4th of July. So today, I just want to sort of reinforce it, add a little bit to it. 2,000 years ago, serious Jewish people did not just not have dealings with Samaritans. They didn't like any Gentiles, i.e. Jews, Gentiles, two groups of people in the world from the Jewish perspective. Jews and Gentiles. You're either Jew or you're not. You're something else. And they, so they didn't like Gentiles at all, but they liked Samaritans even less than all the other Gentiles. Why? Because the Samaritans had kind of defected from the true Jewish religion, kind of had developed their own rival system. Uh, you can listen to some of the comments of the rabbis at the time Jesus was walking the earth. Here's one, I quote. Gentiles, including Samaritans, are created by God to fuel the fires of hell. That is just so tender, isn't it? Here's another one. There is joy in heaven when one sinner, that is Gentile, i.e. Samaritan, is, I love this, obliterated from off the face of the earth. 
I just, I, I, a tear comes to my head. So loving. No, okay. no, it's not loving. Now, you and I know that Jesus was just the opposite, right? Didn't he say that there's joy in heaven when even one sinner, hmm, that could include a Gentile and a Samaritan, repents? When it came to, came to Samaritans, there had been this long-standing animosity. In fact, popular Jewish prayer 2,000 years ago is this. Lord, do not remember the Samaritans. Forget them when it comes to the resurrection. Let them just stay in the ground as dust. That'd be, that'd be a cool dust. So, again, so tenderhearted. Okay. Needless to say, Jews and Samaritans did not hang together. No contact whatsoever. So when we read Jesus needed to go to Samaria, that is a statement blasting out at us about Jesus' attitude of love towards those people. He needed to go because he happens to love everybody of any culture, of any country, at any time. He loves everybody, everywhere. So he goes to them. There's a song you might have heard as a kid, right? Maybe you got taught when you were a munchkin, Jesus loves the little children, all the little children of the world. Right? That's true. He does love little children. You know what else? He loves adults, too. And even more amazing, he loves teens, teenagers. I know, it's, I know it sounds hard to believe, but he does. He loves college students. He loves white-collar workers. He loves blue-collar workers. He loves drug addicts, and prostitutes, and thieves, and murderers. He loves them all. In fact, he loves them as much as he loves you and me. Reading through the Gospels, you find that he goes way out of his way on most occasions to reach them and love them. Jesus speaks of this so clearly in Matthew chapter 18. He asks this question, what do you think? What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than all the 99 that never went astray. So it is the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little, that none of these little sheep, none of these little ones, including Samaritans, should perish. So here's the question. Answer it privately in your own heart. You don't have to scream it out. Is there a culture? Is there a people group that you have trouble with? Are you prejudiced in your own heart about a certain people group? Has that been something that's maybe been passed down to you from dad, mom, grandparents, whatever? Maybe in some of the circles that you hang out with, your friends, where you say certain things, make certain remarks, have certain feelings, and you're just kind of flat out, not Jesus. For white people, it can be a prejudice against blacks, Hispanics, whatever. But it doesn't end there. Here's the truth. Virtually every race on the earth, I would say all races, but I have not met people from every single race, but everyone that I have met, and I've been all over the world, has identified some other race or people group or tribe or something as something less, something not quite as human and as lovable as we are. If you don't think so, please explain to me the 800 thousand dead Tutsis at the hand of Hutus in Rwanda. Please explain to me the massacres of Bosnians by the Serbs. It is the world we live in. Man without Jesus just goes there naturally. If you're not sure, here's what you can do. Go ask somebody who loves you, who knows you, 
who's close to you and, most importantly, would be honest with you and just say, do you see that kind of thing in my life? Do you see that popping up? Do you see that kind of prejudice, that kind of anti-this person or that person or that people group? Unless they're afraid, they might tell you. If they do, then you ask God to transform you, give you love like Jesus had for all those people. Listen, I read this this week and it just crushed me. Maybe it'll crush you. Maybe you don't care. But did you know that Mahatma Gandhi, great Hindu leader and social worker, almost, be, almost, almost became a Christian? He wrote in his own autobiography. I guess it would be his own autobiography. He wrote it, so it's his own. So it's his autobiography. You don't need the word own there. He wrote it that at one time he was reading through the Gospels. And he was so impressed with Christ that he wanted to convert to Christianity. So I figured this probably happened when he was a younger dude. So I give you a picture here of a more youthful shot of him than you typically see, right? He thought Christianity would be, could be, maybe the answer to the India's caste system. You know what kept him from becoming a Christian? Yeah, who said Christians? Yeah, Christians. Christians did this. He said he was going to the church one Sunday to get instruction on Christianity and baptism. And that the person at the door met him and said, you'll love this. Go and worship with your own kind. He left the church, never to return. He also wrote in his autobiography, well, if Christians have caste differences, I might as well remain a Hindu. So do you have a caste system operating in your heart, and does it need to be torn down? Then just start right there. And ask Jesus to give you the kind of love for people that would transcend their culture and your cultural differences with them. Here's the second trait we see Jesus in loving. It transcends gender. Transcends gender. You may think, maybe we don't, we may not have as much of a problem as they had back in those days, but then again, maybe so. Jesus was Jew. She was a Samaritan. Okay, that's one big deal. She was a man. He was a woman. She was a, he was a man. She was a woman. Back then, those were big differences. Even the woman said, how is it you, being a Jew, would ask me, a Samaritan woman? So she figured out that this was not something that was supposed to happen. And did you notice, by the way, in verse 27, when the disciples come back, they're coming up the hill, and they see him talking to this gal, and they are marveling, marveling. They're surprised. They're astonished. They're, they're stunned that he's talking with a gal. Funny to our ears a little bit, right? Here's the disciples, Peter, James, John. Guy who wrote this book. They're coming up the hill, and they're going, ooh, he's talking to a chick. This is, this is we don't know. Shh. Their minds are wrong. You know why that is? Because he didn't talk to women. Strict rabbis had instructed younger rabbis, and Jesus was a rabbi, never to talk to women in public. Even your own wife, even your own daughters, because it could be a distraction. It could keep you from studying the Torah. In fact, the rabbi said this, I quote, you'll love this. Okay, there's just so many loving things that you can quote from. Let a man burn the words of the law rather than teach them to a woman. Did you, would you, would you feel special, gals, right now? If you lived 2,000 years ago? No. Women were to be subservient. They were to be hidden. Even Abraham, when people came to visit his tent, he whisked her away, his wife, Sarah, into another quarter of the tent so nobody would see her. 
This is going to crack you up, I think. But did you know there was a group of people in Israel known as the bruised and bleeding Pharisees? Whenever they were out in public and they saw a woman on the street, they closed their eyes. They closed their eyes. They didn't, they didn't just stand still. They closed their eyes and they kept moving. They didn't want to look at another woman. They didn't want to be tempted by someone. Right? So you can imagine what would happen, right? You're walking along the wrong, you see a woman, close your eyes, keep walking, you're going to hit a wall. You're going to hit a house. You're going to trip over a pet. You're going to fall down a hole. You're going to get knocked down. You're going to get knocked into the street. You're going to get run over by something, whatever. They could, but as they got these bruises and bloodied stuff going all, they, they, they bragged about those. Oh, this, this shows how holy we are. Because we're willing to have this abuse taken on us because we don't have to talk to, to, get to a gal or see a gal. The point is that Jesus obviously, obviously did not care about these stupid social customs of man versus women. I have to. I need to go to Samaria. Over oh, there's a person. She's a human being. She's made in my image. She matters. She's one of my created beings. And she lives there. And she needs the truth. And I care about all people, including her. So we should be thanking God that Jesus came because he's the one who actually liberates women and puts them on a pedestal equal to any man. Right? By the way, what does the New Testament say? Paul says this in Galatians. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to promise. Men, women, equal heirs of the promise of God. That's Bible right there. And that's God's heart. It's Jesus' heart. And it's supposed to be ours. Love transcends gender. Now, unfortunately, right, some women still want to abuse and disparage women, even in our own culture. I hear conversations. How people are referred to. Belittling things people say about their own wives. It should never happen among Christ followers. Okay. Jesus' love also transcends character. Character. This wasn't just a Samaritan. It wasn't just a woman. It was a woman of ill repute. Even in her own culture. This is our visitor passage. Jesus says, verse 16, Go call your husband. Come here. Woman said, I have no husband. I love what Jesus does here. She actually doesn't tell the whole truth. She tells kind of a half truth, but the part that she tells is actually true. And so he praises her. It's crazy, crazy, crazy. He praises her for telling the truth. I have no husband. He said to her, You are right. At a girl. I have no husband. Then he goes for the hammer, right? But for you've had five. And the one you're now with isn't your husband. But again, he repeats it. What you've said is true. Well, here's a gal. She's been around a lot of guys. And even in her own culture, she's got kind of a sordid character. That's why she's coming to the well at noon, at the heat of the day. That's why she doesn't come in the morning with everybody else in town. No, she comes at noon because she doesn't want to be around the jeers and the taunts of all those respectable people who would notice her and call her a woman with bad, bad juju. I'm picturing her as a young girl one, at one time, right? I can imagine she's just falls in love, head over heels with some guy. Up there in sidecar, he marries her. Things are off good to a start. As time goes on, things fall apart. Eventually, he dumps her. 
She's no doubt heartbroken. Then somebody else comes along, and she's enamored with him. And this might just be the one, right? Maybe number two is going to be the one that works. And she marries him, but then they break up. And then it's three, and then it's number four, and then it's number five, and now she's so disillusioned, just trying to get by in a life that has not turned out anything like she dreamed it would be. And she's not even trying anymore. If I go to a judge, just shack up. But did you notice Jesus did not have a hang-up talking to her? Not just a woman, this kind of woman. And the point's obvious. There is no one too awful, no one too sinful, no one too low, no one too marginalized for Jesus to love on and be concerned with and to be touched by his love and grace. Everybody else considers her the moral equivalent of a weed. Jesus sees her as a flower. He gives her attention. They care. He not only looks and sees her, he's talking with her. Love drives him to Samaria to have this conversation. That's a lesson for us. Somebody once said, I, I forget, I couldn't find who said it, but I remember the, the uh, quote as, as, as much as I remember anything. The quote is this. How many lost people are kept out of the kingdom of God by those unlovely characters who profess to be inside of it? You can push people off right at arm's length because we forget what it's like to be lost. One of my recent conversations was an interesting one at Costco. Costco. I sauntered up to the counter where they put the roasted chickens that they grill behind the counter. And I saw that the counter was empty. Uh, but there was a woman there in a full hijab, standing there with what I figure was her teenage son. I looked around to see if she had a husband nearby that I should talk to, so I didn't call any, do a, do a, kind of a cultural faux pas. I didn't see one. So I got up the courage, and I asked her, excuse me, but are you here waiting in line for the roasted chicken? She goes, yes, I am. They're coming, off, they're coming off the grill right now. Then I asked, have you had a roasted chicken from here before? And she goes, yes, they, they are the best. I said, really? That, that's so good to hear. Thanks for sharing that because I've gotten some at Giant before. And before I finished the sentence, she interrupted me to say, I know, they cost more and they're tiny. They don't feed anybody. Anyway, so off we go. Yakking for about eight minutes before the chickens appear. In those eight minutes, I found out that she's from Yemen. Found out that she, how long she's been here, why they left Yemen. I got to tell her how happy I am that they're here in our country. And I got to ask her if there's anything she needed or anything that we could pray for or help with or whatever. So no, I didn't lead her to Christ, okay? But, but, what do you think if she had five more conversations with Christians like that? What if she had ten more? What if she had 20 more or 50 more encounters like that with Christians as immigrants in this country? Do you think it's more or less likely that she might find Jesus appealing? So let's look at Jesus' approach, his approach. I call it a lingering approach because you'll notice in the conversation that all of this woman's terse, little, cute, smart alecky remarks don't ever give Jesus the occasion to say, okay, okay, I've had enough. I'm done with you. I'm out of here. He stays with her. In fact, what he does is kind of, kind of interesting. He does something that appeals to her curiosity, 
Then he appeals to her inner craving. Then he kind of appeals finally to have her kind of assess her choices in life. So we've got to understand something about unsaved people. Most people don't know that they're lost, who are lost. I've rarely heard anybody walk up to me and go, yeah, I know I'm a sinner. I'm going to be face judgment. I'm probably going to go to hell. So I'm, be, I'm, I'm probably need a savior, but I don't know what to do. I mean, <laughs> Most people do not get in touch with that sort of level of themselves, right? They don't get that. Uh, about the time people get that is when they get saved and they look back and they go, whoa, is I lost or what? <laughs> uh, I was blind, but now I see. Billy Graham once said this, the most devastating effect of sin is that we are blinded to it. Here's a woman blinded. And Jesus is working to open her eyes. He does this with this curiosity thing. It's, it's what I think advertisers would call a hook. Jesus responds to her question with a, a mysterious statement. To some, it's an ambiguous statement, not clear in her mind what he's even speaking about, really. He doesn't, but he doesn't say this, which he could have said, and it would have been true. Well, you know who I am? I'm the incarnate Son of God. Come to refresh you with spiritual stuff for, by forgiving your sin and giving you new life. He doesn't say that. He builds some curiosity. He's, he says this. If you knew the gift, that sounds interesting, the gift of God. What, there's a gift of God? What's that mean? Okay, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. A lot of little confusing things, a lot of little tidbits, little nuggets. It's a hook. It's a kind of statement that makes her go, hmm, I wonder what that's all about. What's, that, what's he talking about? It's just enough information, just little tidbits, to kind of whet her appetite and get her asking some more questions. Listen, you and I can do this. We, we really could. Right? The goal is just to pique another person's curiosity in order to engage them in a conversation. Maybe you're at Starbucks and someone's reading a newspaper next to you. You could ask, man, I read the paper too, but I'm just not sure I know who to trust anymore. They might blow you off, but they might ask you, what, what do you mean? You might say, well, even what I think would be simple things, like a weather forecast, they seem wrong more often than they're right. I don't know, but it goes deeper than that. I don't know who to believe. And then maybe they start talking about fake news, blah, 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 blah. My guess is that in those questions, you're going to connect at some level. And they're, they're going to feed you information that tells you kind of what matters to them, what they're concerned about, how they look at life. I was reading a book by G. Campbell Morgan, one of my favorite expositors who's now in heaven. Uh, but he comments on a, on a verse in uh, Acts chapter 2. Uh, and it's talking about the people in Jerusalem. It says, people in Jerusalem were all amazed and marveled and what was going on in the church of Jesus Christ. Church members loved each other, and they loved the lost people in Jerusalem. Here's what Morgan said, commenting on that. The trouble too often is that the world is not amazed, not at all perplexed, because there's nothing to amaze them and nothing to perplex them. The work of the church is to amaze and perplex the city, that's what makes the city listen, awaken their need by curiosity. Second thing that Jesus does, he appeals to her spiritual craving. Now, she, she has no clue what that is, right? She doesn't know what that's all about, but Jesus begins to unearth it. Verse 11, woman said to him, sir, you got nothing to draw water with. Well's deep. Where are you going to get this living water? 
in the Jewish parlance, living water was running water, not a well. It was like a brook, a stream, a river, whatever. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He, he, he's, he surveyed this land. He didn't see any living, living water running around anywhere. He had to dig a well. He drank from it as did his sons and his livestock. There was no river, no, nothing here, living water. Jesus comes back with a more tantalizing fact. Everyone who drinks of this water, pointing to the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I give him will never be thirsty. Water I give him will become to him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, Jesus knew that this woman had a deep longing, right? And she's thinking, who does this guy think he is? Is he greater than Jacob? Does he think he is? She knows he's unusual because he's talking to her. So he's, she's got that down. But the statement begins to percolate and begins to touch her deeply and go below the surface. She's coming to grips with, you know, he's talking about a kind of refreshment. If I was honest with myself, I've kind of wanted all my life. Here's the point you and I need to take away from this. Human beings have an enormous thirst for spiritual things. They just don't recognize it as such. They're thirsty, right? There's this hope that they have. And, and so the thirst comes out this way. There's this idea that there, there must be something more than what I am already experiencing on earth right now. It's what one author called a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every human being. God's put a vacuum in there that cannot be filled by any created thing. Paul the Apostle put it this way in Romans chapter 8. Sin caused a rift in our relationship with God, and the curse kind of damaged creation itself and relationships we have with each other. So those effects result in futility as we navigate this earth, right? Do you think this woman has experienced some of that futility? You tell me, five failed marriages? In other words, we're born with a hole in our soul, so we'll walk around going, yeah, that was fun. That was good. He was nice. She was a really good conversationalist. But sh surely there's got to be something more. So here's a woman preoccupied with a hole in the ground. And Jesus is all about the hole in her soul. You can have that thirst quenched. You don't have to ever thirst again. Living water. You ought to try that next time. So you can start with a statement that makes people wonder, makes them curious. Follow it up by looking to move the conversation to a deeper level. And it may, it may take several conversations. You're not going to necessarily do it all in one fell swoop. But you get to the point where you, you, you know, find out whether somebody actually feels like they're really fulfilled. I mean, are you massively happy with everything in your life? Couldn't be better ever? You don't hope or wish for anything more than what you have right now? It's all there for you? You have these wants that you have that haven't been quenched. Because that's where Jesus has taken her. The third thing is he appeals to her conscience, her choices. It's pretty obvious when you go through this. Verse 16, he does something fascinating. Of course, he knows everything, right? So he can pull this off in one conversation, right, pretty easily. We might need a little more time to discern some things, but we're back to that passage where he asked her to go get her husband. And she says, I'm not married. Thing. Okay. And Jesus tells her about the five husbands. See what's doing? Up to now, Jesus has been kind of indulging her, her criticism, her flippant, cute little remarks, because he knows what he's speaking to her, but she's speaking from her pain. But now it's time to get a little serious. Time to penetrate the crusty veneer and go to the heart. He's gotten her curious. He's getting her in touch with her spiritual thirst. And then with one statement, go call your husband. It's like a sharpshooter. 
with one bullet, and he fires it. It was enough to evoke a flood of memories, past failures, past broken relationships, one after another, until she finally just gave up and said, I'm not even going to go to a judge. Why bother? It's not going to last. Let's just live together. Jesus said what he said, and she immediately thought, how does this stranger know all of this stuff about me? He must be a prophet, which he hears from God. So I got a question. I always have questions when I read scripture. Why does Jesus go there? Why does he dare to pull such a scab off of such a deep wound? Just, just to make her feel bad? No, to get her to see her great need. She's hiding behind these little statements and questions. She's experienced a ton of rough water in her life. Here she is, sitting at this well, in the heat of the day, totally ostracized by everyone in her own city. She is, as my granddaughter Molly would say, using a phrase she has heard from her mother, I'm a hot mess. Time to stop the gamesmanship and get to reality. This is called the uh-oh moment. It's where she knows she's busted. Jesus is very personal because here's the point, here's the truth. She will never be interested and drink from the living water unless she concludes, concludes oh, yeah, okay, he's, he's right. I really am incredibly thirsty. And everything I've tried in my past, including all these guys, have never fulfilled my thirst. Look, before anyone we would talk to will seek a savior, they've got to begin to see the damage caused by their own sinful choices and want something different. If all we do is judge them and tell them how bad they are, they'll either argue or they'll leave in a huff. But they also don't get there if all we do is tell them how good they are, how nice they are, how they should just think nice, fuzzy thoughts and believe whatever they want to believe as long as they're sincere. There's got to be a point where a person is led lovingly to confront their choices, what's not worked, and the consequences. Once there, they can begin to see the need for having their sin dealt with by a God who loves them. If you have loved them, they begin to see a picture of that glove throwing through you. A God that loves them enough to forgive that sin. And the very real possibility of a better way forward with Christ than continuing to do what has not worked for them yet. And so curiosity, thirst, and then very real engaging the conscience. Now for this woman, it was relational baggage. For Nicodemus, it was his belief that just being born a Jew made him good with God. So he gets the, you must be born again, been born, that doesn't do it, buddy. For the rich young ruler, it was his love of money. So he gets the sell everything you have and come and follow me. He might walk up to some of us and say, hmm, why don't you go get your income tax returns? Bring them here. Let's talk. I'd like to review them with you. Or go get your internet activity for the last week. Bring those over. We'll talk about that. Or get your phone records for the last six months. Let's talk about that. See, it sort of depends on what the hang-up is, what the sin is, where the failure is, where the bad choices are. And Jesus gets very personal here with this gal on a huge issue that dominates her life. But listen, this conversation is not over yet. There's still more, which we'll be looking at next week. 
And when it's all over, this woman starts asking some really cool questions. Could this be the Christ, the Messiah? It's because Jesus loved, he was undeterred by her culture, gender, or character issues, and it was his approach to lovingly hang in there, to have her persuaded that he was the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior that she and her whole city actually needed. So, you're a Christian, right? Can I tell you that you know infinitely more than the nearest lost person? You have a message. Jesus has commissioned you and me to deliver it. So go out, engage with people. Listen, if you talk about this, if you tell God that you're open to that, you will be amazed at the people God will bring across your path to talk to. As you talk, they will share, and you'll begin to discern the loving approach to move into a spiritual dimension. A lot of times it can be your own personal testimony, whatever. Jesus changed your life, but be willing to just get started. He talked last week about the dangerous prayer of God break my heart. <laughs> Does anybody here think that God's heart doesn't break when he sees all the lost people roaming around planet Earth? What if God broke our hearts for those who are around us who don't know Christ? Do you, do you think you would live differently this week as you pass people every day headed for a grim eternity? I think so. Let us not be content to go to heaven all by ourselves. Why don't we let's want to take some people with us? Why don't you say? He calls us Christians his body and he directs us to be guided by his spirit to do the same thing he did, and we have his example for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love for us. When we were still sinners, when we were enemies, no no better, no better, no better than this Samaritan woman. We are no better than Judas. And you loved us enough to come, live perfectly, die on the cross, to pay for our sins. You've given us a message. We don't have to die. We just have to tell people. Would you get our hearts? Would you grab hold of them? Would you force yourself on us, force us to listen to this? that there are people around us in Falls Church, in Arlington, and Fairfax, and wherever that we go that do not know you and are dying of thirst, dying for knowledge, dying to be loved on and be told. Yeah, not everybody's going to do it, but they need to be told. Would you guide us in our hearts forward? Show us how to talk to people. Show us enough to care. Because people will know, like dogs, whether we love them or not. And it is in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.